Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Net Positive Podcast. A podcast which educates and inspires marketers, product managers, and companies in the best way to generate and optimize your flows. We're your hosts, Matt Brown and Jess Walker, and we will bring you the latest on how to improve your sign-up flow, increase your leads, and grow your business. Let's, Let's jump, jump in. in. Matt Damon and the chairman of the World Economic Forum both call themselves fans. Al Gore and Jack Ma wear his socks. Law firms around the world use the software. And companies like Sony Pictures and ANZ Bank have been taking his advice for years. Adam Long is our incredible guest on today's podcast, and we learn all about how to build impact into your product, what exactly ethical growth is, and the journey of how a humble sock stall at the Glebe Markets turned into a global company helping fight poverty through supporting hundreds of charities along the way. G'day, Adam. Welcome to the podcast. Adam Long, Ethical CEO. Great to be here. Fantastic to have you here. You know, you've grown everything from uh, software to software. I'd love to learn a little bit about your background. You know, you've you've met Matt Damon, you've got Al Gore wearing your socks. So I'd love to learn how you got here so far. Largely by accident, a series of stumbles and fuck-ups. Am I allowed to say that on this podcast? Let's start right there. So (laughs) the biggest lessons I've learned in marketing and strategy are by spending my own money. So my first business was freshly after I graduated as an industrial designer and I was so excited about 3D printing and could see this thing was going to change the world. Now, I used to go to all the events with, with other entrepreneurs talking about how they got to where they are, and they said it's all about passion. You'll hear people saying, no, you can't make it, but you've got to push through and be more passionate about it than anyone else. And I was more passionate about 3D printing than anyone else, and that was the problem because there wasn't actually a market there. <laughs> so despite having uh, raised 100000 in investor capital, setting up this business after nine months, that money had vanished. Wow. Christmas Eve of that year to sit down with these two staff members and tell them, sorry, guys, there's no business to come back to. Merry Christmas. We're bust. And that was a real turning point for me because up until that point, I'd always wanted to be a CEO and run a company and I'd finally done it and discovered that I couldn't. I was missing a lot of the basic elements and understanding needed to make it happen. So from there, I went into consulting on strategy, learning from other much smarter people than I am and sitting down with people who had already done amazing things and problem solving with them. And that set me up on this trajectory where I could be in a position to work across socks in one business, software, software, uh, and anything else that comes away. Can we dive a little bit into the socks? What are they? How did it happen? Yeah. So the socks are a company called Conscious Step. Mm -hmm. And Conscious Step makes socks that fight for causes that matter. So every single pair is partnered with a different charity. So the pair I'm wearing today funds breast cancer research. Another pair will plant 10 trees for every pair we sell. Another will provide a week's worth of HIV treatment through the the UNAIDS program. That's incredible. Wow. And so since starting at Glebe Markets back in 2012, doing our first customer trials there, we've grown the business, taken on investment. We're now in a few thousand stores around the world from David Jones in Australia to uh, a gift shop in an Amish Amish village I once discovered in Pennsylvania, (laughs) USA. And yeah, those socks are now worn by everyone from uh, uh, Mark Benioff through to, as he said, Matt Damon. Matt Damon, who we had a coffee with, right? That's right. Amazing. And you met Jack Ma, who's just massive. (laughs) Alibaba Jack Ma. That's right. Yeah, he's, he's incredible. Did you get your socks from Alibaba? (laughs) <laughs> we did actually source some suppliers through nice. Alibaba and uh, went through 12 factories before finally happy with one that could do a really good job in a sustainable way. Wow, that's incredible. And, and what's happening with the socks now? 
So after a rough year in which the wholesale and retail market, particularly in the US, mm-hmm. uh, it took a lot of hits and a lot of, of damage, uh, we were actually surprised that the business continued to grow through that period. So we've got our sights set on more impact, helping more charities and getting our socks on more feet around the world. Could you disclose some of the figures that, you know, how many socks are selling, what kind of charities have you got? So since we started in 2012, mm-hmm. uh, we've funded the planting of hundreds of thousands of trees, more than 100,000 books for schools in Southeast Asia through Room to Read. We support programs like Trees for the Future, Action Against Hunger, providing meals to kids in refugee camps, the uh, UN AIDS program, providing a week's worth of HIV treatment for mm-hmm. every pair that's sold. The point of starting that business was always about having more impact than any one of us three founders could as Mm. individuals. And looking back over nearly nine years since we started that business now, when we look at the figures, so uh, recently we we announced a half million dollar US uh, donation to all our our charity partners. we couldn't have got there by getting a good job in a bank somewhere and saving yeah. up our pennies and get to that point mm. at this point in our career. We're all early 30s. Uh, so by doing that together and harnessing a tribe, we were able to make so much more impact than we could alone. So I have to ask, you know, why impact for you personally? Like what, what was it about this particular project that got you really excited and got you started? So I spent my university holidays over in the Philippines working in slum areas and with communities over there, helping them to uh, build sustainable incomes for themselves. And working with Engineers Without Borders back in Australia became really fascinated with how charity is actually done and the shortest Mm. path to impact. And over the years of experimenting with working with government, working in charities and working in the business sector and selected for myself, not because it's better than any others, but selected for myself that business as a force for change can be really powerful. So at the time I was on the board of Engineers Without Borders and we were looking for uh, alternative income streams when in the years of Tony Abbott, the, <laughs> the funding for aid programs was, was disappearing uh, and in tough business times, corporate mm. donations can really fluctuate. We were looking at, well, what, what are the ways we can create a sustainable income? Social enterprise was the answer, but was still a relatively new concept when we were talking about it. And donors at the time weren't quite comfortable with the idea that a charity might just start a business on the side. So the answer was to do something Mm. outside of the charity. And in that way, the social enterprise could be the one taking on all the risk. So we can do things like invest in marketing in a way that charities usually can't. We Mm. can pay bonuses and commissions to sales staff as a reward for a good job, which charities really struggle to do. So it was always about creating a a mechanism for reliably creating funding for these charities that could sit outside of the charities and we could take risks. Fantastic. That's incredible. That is incredible. And can we go further into your career? So you've done your conscious conscious step socks and then you went into strategy and consulting and then into humanitics. Can you tell us a bit about your role at humanitics? Yeah. So I've been working with humanitics over the last couple of years as their chief growth officer. Now, humanitics is a phenomenal organization. So they're a charity that runs like a tech startup. So there's no shareholders. Uh, the way it works is they run a ticket ticketing platform. So event organisers host their event, sell tickets through Humanitix, a bit like Eventbrite, except those booking fees that seem to pop up at the end whenever you're buying tickets, Mm. they end up funding girls' education in Southeast Asia. So they work towards closing the education gap around the world. So instead of those booking fees ending up in Silicon Valley shareholders' pockets, Mm. it's ending up creating value for, for people who really need an education. And they're growing massively, aren't they? 
phenomenally. Uh, as fast as the events industry can, which you can understand has <laughs> yeah, been rather COVID, volatile yes. over, over the last 12, 12 months. But even as the events industry has contracted, the, the market share is continuing to grow and grow and grow. You seem to have a surprising capacity to shorten learning circles and to generate rapid growth um, despite having to adapt to different industries. What's your recipe? A lot of the realizations came from uh, working for a business in which it became a partner called Step Change. There is a strategic consultancy, uh, particularly focused on marketing. And those early stages of my career, sitting down with business owners week after week and, and solving problems, it soon recognized there's a lot of patterns in the problems. And someone who'd worked in a business for uh, decades and hadn't seen outside of it, they can miss that actually in another industry, that problem is solved and nobody worries about that. And all they need to do is do what, what was happening in, in another industry. So it came down to patterns and then starting to look down at the, the first principles underlying it all. So one of my favorite exercises to do with uh, when I sit down with business owners is to write out the algorithm that underpins their business. Now stay with me because I know algorithms usually get people switching off <laughs> podcasts, right? But we know that at profit is your revenue minus costs. Yes. And then we know that revenue comes from how many customers you have, what they pay, how many things they buy and how often they buy. And if you break down each of those into the, the layers below, at about layer five or six, you get a full map of all the levers in a business you might pull on any given day right. to, uh, to generate growth. And so I'm a strategist. Strategy is essentially choice. You've yep. got limited resources. Where are we going to invest those for maximum impact? And having that map of the business of all the levers makes it really clear on any given day which one becomes more important, which are the, the initiatives that, that need to, to be driven the most. And those levers are, are, can be quite consistent across multiple businesses. Only four ways to grow a business. You get new customers, you charge them more, you get mm -hmm. them to buy more often or you get them to buy more things. So you're the ethical CEO. Is there an ethical way to grow a business and is it slower or more expensive? If you're taking growth from an economic perspective, there, mm -hmm. is, there is a narrative that, that growth is bad because it's hitting the constraints of the planet, which is a very fair argument. So ethical growth is growing towards, from a systems perspective, true sustainability. So we can absolutely live in a world where 100% renewable energy powers everything we do from manufacturing to recycling the things that are manufactured into something new. So that's the second part, the closed cycle manufacturing systems. And in that world, Growth isn't a problem. If, uh, this is why I got into 3D printing 10 years ago, which is still probably 20 years too early. Uh, the idea that we can create objects that can then be completely reclaimed and something new made from that. And we're, we're seeing those initiatives around the world. Even Apple have started to reclaim their own iPhones and extract the raw materials from it because at industrial scales, it's cheaper to just get your iridium and coltan from the circuit boards inside existing iPhones than it is to go and mine it out of, uh, out of the ground somewhere else. So we are approaching a tipping point where our society can actually be truly sustainable at all levels. And growing into that is absolutely worth doing. What advice would you give to new founders or new companies or even old companies about you know, how they can improve the sustainability factor, how they can improve their impact and not just do it to look good? The organizations doing it best are ones that bake the goodness into the model right from the start. Mm -hmm. So that's as opposed to those who do it at the end of the process. They design their business model and they say, oh, we'll give some away at the end. If there's any profit, if mm -hmm. we haven't increased our own salaries and made some nice investments in good office furniture and there's some profit left, then we'll, we'll give it away. So that's not to ever cast shade on anyone who gives away profit, more power to them. <laughs> but the best impact 
comes from baking in. So with Conscious Step, for example, the, uh, the impact is baked into the cost of goods sold. So when we manufacture a sock and put on the packaging, this will plant 10 trees, we've already allocated the funding for that. So it doesn't matter for us whether we give that pair away, sell it at full price, half price, run a promotion, we can take that risk and the charity will, will always, always benefit from that. Uh, likewise with Humanitics, the way they've structured, it's just built into into how they do things. So uh, the team at Humanitics does well when the organisation does well, which means event organisers do well and more kids get educated. It's a really, really nourishing cycle. You mentioned you started selling your socks at a market stall initially and then now you're in thousands of stores around the world. Can you talk about some of the growth lessons you learnt along the way and like, you know, what, what, were, what were some of the aha moments that you kind of picked up that really helped you scale as fast as you did? We started with our assumptions as all good startups should. And we assumed that doing men's socks means we would be bought by men. Uh, the charities we supported would be a, a main part of our, our growth engine and people will buy our socks because they, they value that charity. So before we'd ordered any socks, before we even had a brand or a name for the company, we got, got a bunch of socks from a $2 shop, got them embroidered with symbols representing the Millennium Development Goals and set up at Glebe Markets and just spoke to people hey, we've got a bunch of socks here. Would you buy them? Are they for you? Are they for someone else? Is it, is it a, a, a gift? Is it, would you buy them at $5? Yeah. What about 10, 15, 20? Uh, is the style more important? Is the charity more important? Is the cause more important? And by asking all those questions, we gathered a huge amount of customer data and completely changed our proposition. We soon realized that, yeah, they're men's socks. They weren't being bought by men. They were being bought mm-hmm. by women as gifts for it. So that underpinned the, the, the business model from that point on. Uh, with that information, we had enough to go and do a crowdfunding campaign, which not only funded our first proper order of socks, but gave us a window of about three months before those socks arrived, where we could go and have conversations with investors saying, hey, look what we did in 30 days. Imagine what we'll do over the next few years. It was perfect timing to do it. And then from there came uh, building systems for, for reliable growth. And there's a, there's a lot of hard work in that. I can definitely second the fact that I, I've never bought a pair of my own socks. Yeah. I don't think they've always been bought by my mum or my wife. Yeah. Thanks, mum. If it was up to you, you'd have like 10-year-old socks right now. I'm pretty sure I do. <laughs> With what you realised when you were talking to all those people at the Glebe Markets is your end user wasn't actually the person who would purchase your product. Is that correct? That's right. And so most most of the time your socks were, were bought as gifts. That's right. So how did you... How did you go from targeting the person who would actually use it to the person who would buy it for the user? It was one of those assumptions that we just invalidated very early, which set Mm. us on the right track. Mm. So before we'd spent huge amounts of money uh, on advertising to to find that out, the conversations went went a long way. These days when testing a a concept like that, Mm. uh, my first point of call is usually Facebook dynamic ads, testing multiple product visuals and iterations and packaging with multiple price points and multiple messages and then seeing who buys it. There's a lot of information that can be uh, pulled out from very small scale tests. So leading on from you, said then, you know, talking about the ways that you actually attracted and acquired customers, I'd love you to answer an ongoing debate. We have sales versus marketing versus product-led growth. Like what, how do you think about that sort of triangle and, and you know, where, where do you see things going? Once again, it comes back to that algorithm that underpins the business. And when you're doing that, there there is no distinction between it. There is a continuous value chain from how people find out you exist, marketing, uh, sales, how you convert them, whether that's assisted with humans or, or not through to how you retain. All of those three need to come together to generate a dollar reliably at the end of the day. So there is no distinction between them, only in job titles at the end of the day. 
But the the very notion of, of customer centricity is is recognizing that a customer experiences all of those things, and it doesn't matter your perspective or which hat you've got on on any given day. What matters is where is the customer in their journey. What what are you building to connect them from finding out through to being a retained customer? What, what's the best customer journey you've ever been through? I take my hat off to the team at Humanitix for for their customer journey. So they do things that would surprise a lot of other other software companies, including calling every single user that signs up on the day that they sign up. Really? And that has just done phenomenal things from uh, loyalty of uh, event organizers doing it from finding and solving product issues early. So the product is getting phenomenally better all the time uh, through to finding big opportunities from somebody who leads a huge event management organization that just happened to sign up with their personal email. Nothing automated is going to pick that up until you pick up the phone and have a conversation mm. with them. Wow. So the effort they put into uh, giving event organizers a, a fantastic experience is really phenomenal. But have they quantified? Because, you know, a lot of businesses would look at that and go, talking to every person who wants to buy your software, especially if you're a bottom-up sales organization, just just wouldn't work. Like I can't I can't imagine that working. Like have, have they got any data or any stats on, on how that's improved, uh, you know, lifetime value of customers? Uh, nothing that I could share on a podcast, but... <laughs> Yes, it's worth it. We tried. (laughs) You consult with a a wide range of different companies at the moment from startups to massive corporates. So for the business owners and growth leaders out there, what's your checklist when you're considering launching or joining a business? And then once you've made the move, like what's your step-by-step process to create traction with them? Like what's, what's your first step? From a choosing where to join, where to help. So the reason the word ethical is in the business name and the, the job title is that I'm looking to work with businesses that are doing good things for the world. If you added up all the hours we spend at work, at a desk, doing our thing, it's about 80,000 hours and everybody has a choice on where to invest that. That might actually be the biggest investment you make in your entire life. And every day we can choose. Are we going to go and help the, uh, the company with loose morals around exploiting resources in underprivileged areas or are you going to Pick someone who's, who's found a problem that, that's really worth solving. So that comes very, very top of mind. And uh, by kind of waving that flag, I've had all sorts of really wonderful businesses uh, come away from property developers specialising in disability accommodation that is better accommodation than I live in. Like, I'd love to wow. live in these places. They do such a good job. Through to uh, companies like uh, Baraha that make laser sensors for self-driving cars, which is, is not your traditional ethical company until you realise that one and a half million people are dying on the roads every year and self-driving cars are going to be part of saving one and a half million lives. And that, to me, is an ethical change that's going to make, it, make a huge difference. So it's all about the lens in many ways. It's the lens you, you view the company through that can often help you make a decision. That's Yeah, that's really, that's incredible. There's a lot of startups out there that want to do well and want to build their impact and their sustainability. Back to my question before is what resources are out there for them to actually learn how to do that better? Because a lot of the time they want to, but they just don't know where to start. It's actually the same resources for other more commercially minded businesses. Mm -hmm. One of the realizations that I think hits some social entrepreneurs pretty hard is discovering that just because they've chosen an ethical or social path, doesn't mean their customers are going to choose them over someone else. They've still got to have a product that's as good or better than what else is out there at a price that's as good or better out there with service that's as good or better. Uh, All of that still matters. So the business fundamentals 
do matter. Mm. There are some cases where the social impact is a fundamental driver of growth. So for example, conscious step, because they're given as a gift, the impact is makes the gift more valuable as, as part of a, a story. Whereas taking a, a, a any random business category and say, oh, but we'll do it for charity, doesn't necessarily drive that customer interaction. So there are businesses where it makes mm. more of a difference than others. So if you were starting out again and you were able to go back in time and tell yourself, you know, the one key lesson, like, you know, what would you say to yourself when you were starting out again? Like, what would that one key lesson be? Goes back to choice. Yeah. So the first businesses I was involved in starting myself never had an issue with ideas, but we drowned in ideas. Too many things trying at the at the same time to get off the ground and 10 things getting done at the end of 10 weeks is less valuable than one thing done at the end of this week and one thing at the, mm-hmm. done at the end of next week. So one of the, the models that I bring to my work with companies is, is monopolist thinking. So of all the different audience and customer segments out there, sure, we want to reach them all. Sure, we want to be world famous and we can be eventually. But right now, who are we going to monopolize? Who are we going to be the number one provider for? And... Uh, the best illustration of that is, is how Facebook grew their audiences. So at the time they started back in 2004, there were thousands of social media organizations all saying, we're taking the entire social experience and we're putting it online and we're for everyone. And how often do you see a, a, a billboard where it says, we are X for everyone. Yeah. yeah. Where is the referability in that? It's like, what, should I tell my mum about this or, or, or my friends? Like, no, no, no. Facebook started with, we are for Harvard students. We are the best tool for Harvard students. They got 100% of Harvard students. Then they expanded it to, okay, now we're for all Ivy League students. The best tool of all the thousands out there for Ivy League students, they all came on. Then college students, and then they expanded. And then mum. And then mum. <laughs> and now lots of mums. Mum came along much later. So for, for these early stage organisations, I'm helping them make those choices and saying, yeah, you've got 20 different customer segments, but let's ignore 19 of them. Mm. We can come back to them mm. later, but right now one of these groups is going to get you to your next stage of value creation faster than the others, and let's dive in and focus there. Focus drives execution. That's what uh, Dan Ross said on podcast number three, I think, and yes. I have not forgotten that. Oh, very good. Oh, I did. Ha- I remembered my question from before. How on earth did you get Matt Damon, Jack Ma, and Al Gore to wear your socks? Because <laughs> <laughs> how do we fix that into our strategy? Yeah, so uh, unique stories for each of them. Matt Damon uh, uh, acting is his side gig. His main gig is actually doing really incredible things in access to water and sanitation around the world. So he's one of the co-founders of Water.org, mm-hmm. uh, which is a charity we support through Conscious Step. So, yeah, he's, he's wearing those socks. And when I got to meet him at the World Economic Forum in Davos back in 2019, uh, yeah, he's like, oh, the sock guy. Yeah, I'm a fan. It's like, yeah, it's nice when Matt Damon. Yeah, I'm a fan of you fan. too, Matt. <laughs> Can I quote that? I'm a fan. Yeah. <laughs> Many of the others have gotten them through the World Economic Forum, which gives them out as gifts. have had a lot of involvement with them over the years. And, yeah, it's how it comes together. Amazing. And I've actually noticed that every time you speak publicly, you don't wear any shoes and only your socks, which I think is... Never hide the merchandise. No. <laughs> Where do you go today for, you know, your uh, energy, your drive, your inspiration? Like, you know, what keeps you getting out of bed every morning, apart from the fact you're saving the world? You know, what are some of the things that you really think about uh, or go to to get your next bit of advice or inspiration? So in terms of advice and inspiration, I am a voracious reader. I'll 
try and get through a book a week on average in in any given year. Uh, there's a couple of blogs that come to mind really well. One of the, one of my favourite ones is actually Thomas Tungus from Redpoint Ventures, who uh, is very generous in sharing statistics around uh, the the SaaS market, the software as a service market, how things are growing. Uh, there's some fascinating stuff to discover there. Yeah. What are your top three books? Top three books: Playing to Win which is a strategy book by uh, A.G. Lafley, who mm-hmm. is behind Procter & Gamble. Uh, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy is, is number two by Peter Rimelt. So they're the top two strategy books. Third one is actually Sapiens. That is my favourite. It's brilliant. And for those that haven't read it, it's recognising that the world we live in is created by shared stories that we all agree on. There's no such thing as money. We just generally agree that if we shift data from one point to another, something valuable has, has been exchanged. And recognising that the world is made in stories yeah. means we can change them. Totally. Well, you're human constructs and contracts. That's, that's all it is. So with your career, you've had quite a lot of success today. Would you say that those edges that you've built over time have compounded and now it's just kind of easier to become more successful? <laughs> I'm actually terrified of becoming irrelevant. My value this year as a consultant is off the back of having built multiple businesses. Mm -hmm. If I'm still being a consultant in 10 years' time off the back of building those same businesses, I've failed to to keep up. So, yes, there there is value. Uh, There is compounding in networks. Mm -hmm. But in terms of relevance, that's a daily battle. So there's new startups in the horizon for you as well? There's a new business that I'm working on at the moment. Oh, can you give us any tips? Watch this space. Ah, okay. <laughs> you mentioned Sapiens and you mentioned storytelling. When you're thinking about engaging a new customer for the first time, how do you think about bringing them along on a journey? Once we've been through the exercise of narrowing the focus from 20 market segments and reaching everyone down to, okay, here's the smallest group of people that we need to reach to hit our next goal. There's a few questions that we we ask every time. First one is, what are we switching them from? Because we never appear in a vacuum. We are always switching either a behavior or from an incumbent or an old way of doing things, which means other providers. So knowing what we're pushing off uh, is, is really important. Once we know what we're switching from, second question is, what actually triggers them to think about a change? Is it a pain point that comes up? Is there a point in their, their life, in their business cycle, in their daily habits that is the best time to reach them? What's going to drive them to actually make, make a change? And what are the barriers that they'll put up, whether, whether they tell you that or not, whether real or imagined, what's actually going to get in the way? So that psychographic profile uh, is the basis for what stories we need to tell them, essentially, which is your sales messages, your uh, USPs, your value proposition. That doesn't come from sitting around a whiteboard going, what do we like? What do we want to say? What, yeah. what about our awards we've won? Let's talk about that. It's, okay, for this customer... In this moment of time when we're trying to reach them, what do they need to hear? What are the barriers we need to overcome? What are the drivers that that connect in that moment? So that's always the the first step before working towards a a value proposition or a sales message. So I came through the marketing industry just at the end of the period of big ideas where it was about having a creative director who would come up with the genius ad and the tagline that the company would have for years. And taglines are dead. It doesn't matter the three words you want to put next to your your company name, what matters is in any given moment, what's going on for that that customer psychologically and what do we need to say to get them to the next step in the journey. Throughout your career, have you seen customers care more about the environment and like what part has marketing played in that? 
So there's definitely been a rise in awareness Mm -hmm. of of issues around the world. There's definitely a trend towards uh, ethical consumerism as well. There's still a very large gap between what people think drives their purchase and what actually drives a purchase. There's some fascinating studies where uh, researchers have asked people on the way into the supermarket, for these categories of products, how important is it that it's ethical? And they'll say, yes, I'll only buy ethical for 86% of the, the products. And then on the way out, say, like, can I just look in your shopping bags, please? Okay, why did you buy that? Oh, because your mum always bought that. Why do you buy that? Oh, habit. Why did you buy that? Oh, it was, it was on discount. And so there's a gap between 86% of categories where people will say, yeah, Uh, the ethics matters and drives the purchase. And actually it only shows up in about 14% of purchases. Now that's not because people are bad, evil or liars. It's just because they lack the self-awareness of of what really drives that. And again, even as those those trends play out, the role of modern marketers is still to recognise that in any given moment, the message they need to hear might actually not be the ethical, ethical one, even if it underpins the business overall. We noticed that you're working on a book at the moment, which is super exciting. And, you know, I've, I've got real envy of anyone who's been able to put pen to paper and get ready to publish something. I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're working on there. So the working title of the book is called Nobody Gives a Fuck, but marketing strategy can change <laughs> that. And it recognises in the title that people are saturated with messages already. Yes. And I had a school teacher who used to talk about, we, we need to get land rights for gay whales. And what he meant by that was that there were so many causes demanding our attention at any given time. It, it's hard to get your head around all of them. And luckily, all three of those areas have actually made massive progress since he made those jokes in the 90s. <laughs> the point is, we're saturated with, with messages and being choiceful around who we reach with what message and when can actually make a huge difference to our impact. Now, I did say it was a working title because I'd be very foolish in not following my own advice if I just picked a title out of thin air. That's going through an online testing process using Facebook dynamic ads to actually work out which cover, which title, which messaging is actually going to be best to get it out there. That's that's awesome. Well, look, um, Adam Long, the ethical CEO, author of a book in progress with an in-progress title. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Beth. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for listening to the Net Positive Podcast brought to you by Upflowy.